I don't know how to describe it other than like like a demon type of sound. But it's silhouetted, hulking, every bit of five and a half feet wide, 13 to 14 foot tall, pitch black. The one thing that ran through my mind when I had this encounter was I don't have a big enough gun. Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello everyone, welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. Tom and Milo are not with us today, however, Forrest is, and we're fortunate enough to have Fred in Alaska with us also. Um, I thought what we would do before we get into updates, and Fred's been with us before for new listeners, um, has some very interesting experiences, but I thought it would be interesting to have, you know, Forrest as an anthropologist discuss with Fred the things that he'd experienced. So Fred, if you don't mind, maybe give us a, kind of go back into the things that, you know, you've experienced. And then later on, um, in the segment, we'll go ahead and do updates if that's okay. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I grew up, uh, I'm Alaska native. I grew up, uh, traditionally, you know, subsistence lifestyle. We were always told, you know, never turn your back on the woods. Don't whistle in the woods. You know, the hairy man will will take you and whatnot. You know, all those stories. I, I was kind of a a savvy kid, and so I, I kind of thought it was like, eh, it's just a way to keep us out of the woods. Until I saw a, a figure in the willows that that screamed at me, shaking trees, and that that made it real. But the the screaming on the bluff in 1983 when when a hairy man was throwing rocks at at the fishing boat we were stuck on a little gravel bar uh that made it 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 pulled it all into uh the reality of like holy crap you know this it's far more than just something off in the distance you know what i mean it, it made it very real um but throughout some experiences between then and you know, 2006, it had always been like an aggressive branch breaking, uh, distraction type of behavior. And then in 06, we were, went up to the Nuyakuk river. Um, it had been planned out a couple of years ahead of time and we were going up gold prospecting and we were only there uh, a couple of hours before it got dark. And no sooner than it, it got dark. We were basically in 2020 hindsight, it seemed like they were trying to lure us out because the whole place creaked. We stepped out with the spotlight to, we thought it was a bear and we're sweeping across to our left to figure out where this bear went to run it off. And we saw three sets of eye shine and they were as big as uh, fence post markers. It, these creatures were huge. So immediately we, we were a step out the door. We get back inside and I shut the little J hook and this little shack we we're in is literally eight foot square. And it had this little 50 style uh, trailer attached to the back of it for kind of like a, a blackened out uh, bunk area for the fish and game observers or whatever, because it was an old salmon counting tower. Well, once we saw that, we jumped back inside and uh, my cousin was off my left shoulder and I was trying to talk to him. And it was so muffled in the room, it, it, it was almost like trying to talk with uh, hearing protection on. And all of a sudden, he was underneath this little card table, locked up with a death grip on the barrel of the 30-06. And he was staring across the room to the other window. And I'm literally like 
three feet away from that window, still holding the shotgun in my hand when I turned and looked. And at the same time I made my eyes contacted with this creature through the window, it turned and looked at me from staring at him. And then autopilot took over and I, I shot three times through the wall. There was a loud scream. The whole place shifted and I, I thought we were going in the river. It, it was uh, time standing still doesn't quite express the... <laughs> The, uh, the hours after that of just silence because no one was really communicating with me and it, it was just, it was a mental torture. I had to sit there and resign myself to death basically just to stop trembling and it was still a, it, it, it still bothers me to this day, um, but it's getting better sharing and, and, and whatnot. But so as we we're sitting there, my cousin starts communicating with me again. Um, I got him off the floor. Uh, he was babbling a little bit, kind of incoherently at first. Finally got him back to me, so to speak, mentally, because it, it was hard with these people that I loved and respected that were hardcore outdoorsmen all of a sudden just shut down. Like uh, it, it, it still bothers me because it ruined our relationship, but so once he starts talking to me again, we decide we're, we're getting our escape plan going because we could just feel something was wrong in the air. Uh, when we were discussing our game plan, he brought up, let's let's spotlight because we were going to leave in the dark, even though everything in us was like, it's real dangerous to try to go boating out of somewhere in the pitch black. But anyway, sorry, my mind gets uh, caught up in those moments sometimes. So we decide we're going to beam out the window and uh, you got to remember hours had passed since I shot through the wall um, about a little over a handful I would guesstimate because it's kind of hard um, because of the the sheer terror going through my mind the whole time exactly how many hours I sat there in the quiet and pumping that damn coal and uh, Coleman lantern I, I still to this day can't stand a light above me or that hiss of a lamp but <laughs> We beam out and we saw nothing until we were beaming on the side. We saw the eye shine. And as we swept back, we beamed this outhouse. And this outhouse is like eight, eight and a half feet tall. There was this pitch black hulking figure that, I mean, it was absorbing the light. So in those moments, it was such a, a mental trying to grasp exactly what we're looking at but it, it seemed like just this huge nothingness that was there for us like i don't know it, it's really hard to put into words um the feeling of we're screwed like so we killed the light we're tucked back into that little cubby and we got barrels crossed we, we're not we're not nowhere near our right minds because i'm i'm sure we were babbling to each other and not hearing a thing it was just like a a blur of uh panic it, uh so anyway after after we calmed down a little bit um we were trying to figure out what we were going to do with our escape plan and it sounded like off in the near distance like rotor wash from a helicopter a real low thumping sound like the you know the blades of a helicopter at a distance where you hear that thump 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 sound but 
it got louder and we were feeling it in the ground. And one of these things ran past the shack and it was like uh, they were all staged around it or something because all of a sudden there was a bunch of that thumping and running around this shack. And it, I don't know, it seemed like every time we were trying to like formulate a, an escape plan or a game plan, some other form of terror would happen. And, and it's speculation in 2020 hindsight, but it almost felt like we were being toyed with, like they were uh, feeding on the fear almost. Well, it started getting lighter and what have you. And we decide we're, you know, we got our game plan. We're going to make a break for it. And just as we were contemplating going out the door, we hear rocks start hitting the side of the shack, uh, real small rocks, but it, it sounded like a pellet gun shooting it. And then it was like a, a, a hail fury of just, it almost sounded like a real strong hail on a, on a metal roof, just hitting the side of this place. And that died down, panic died down. It got real quiet and we finally got up the nerve that okay we're gonna go because the the skiff we had to get to was ready to go we just had to drop it fire it up and and go because all our gas and everything was still in it and it's literally 20 feet to the river bank and like a seven foot drop down to where the skiff was not far but in those moments of terror it, it it really did feel like it was miles and miles away even though it was four large steps. You, you know what I mean? It just seemed like almost like an insurmountable distance. But as soon as we go out the door, it's dead quiet. Uh, my cousin's in front of me and Elder is behind me. And we get to the riverbank edge. He jumps down and I kind of stoop down to help the Elder catch his footing because it, uh, it was dew on the grass and it was a cut bank. So there was an erosion spot there and I had to help him get his footing. Well, as he got his footing, I scooted back about four to six inches just to uh, have a better uh, foot placement when I stood up. And as I stood up, just as I got to full height, a huge rock, a little bigger than a basketball, just whizzed by my face. Um, had I not scooted back, that rock had to have already been in the air coming at me, which is another mind-boggling thing. Anyway slow motion I, my eyes lock on this rock and it impacted the river so hard it hit the bottom of the river real loud before the water could close over it and then i swung turned the direction that the rock came from and this big black mass was moving out of the trees and i put three shots on it with the 30 odd six and it it didn't buckle it, it didn't flinch all i saw was the same big blackness but i heard the bullets hit this thing um and then we ended up getting out of there but it, it was uh it's something that drives me to this day because it's there's so many unexplained things that happen they could have smashed that place they could have ripped us apart uh there, there's just a, a whole I, I don't know it just unanswered questions basically Forrest, there's a lot of information in the last 10 minutes what do you make of all that oh uh, man can i ask uh, Fred, are what uh, tribe are you from? Are you Athabascan, Inuit, or Clinket, or or what? Uh, Aleut. Locally, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, Nushigak tribe. Uh huh. Okay. Um, <clears throat> the reason I'm asking because I I actually when I was in Alaska, it was the first time I'd ever heard the term 
Terry man, and I had two friends that were Athabascans. So uh, that's uh, it seems to be a, a universal term used up there by all the tribes uh, for uh, Bigfoot. Um, I my my idea about what might have been going on in the cabin is: um, Have you ever watched when jackals or um, wolves or um, lions? Sometimes, of course, lions usually make a direct hit. But you see, is some of these canine uh, groups that, when they go after uh, multiple individuals, that they'll circle and and um, and taunt and snap, and and it almost seems like an organized uh, uh, effort to drive, have one one individual panic and take off, and then it's easy for them, for the group to take down that one individual. And I mean, that's what I was thinking. I had in my mind, I was visioning something like this happening when you were talking about the cabin situation. There was, there was what, three or four of you in that cabin? There was three of us. And, you know, in the 2020 hindsight, like what caught our attention to go outside was the whole place creaked, like something of immense weight kind of pushed against it kind of like a stiff wind would but there was no wind and you know just the looking back on it i feel we were lured out and then we we caught wind of them first and jumped back inside and that kind of changed things but of course it's 2020 hindsight you know hindsight speculation but well it's it's all it's all speculation because i mean none of us are mind readers and nobody can uh uh automatically assume that you understand what they're thinking but that that was what i was envisioning i was seeing jackals or wolves you know circling a group of multiple uh uh, animals prey prey animals and that was exactly what i was thinking is that they were and maybe hoping that one of you would panic and rush out and be able to grab one individual and i think you uh kind of even the 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 playing field when you fired into the wall because they suddenly were aware of the fact that, uh Oh, these guys have got uh, those big boomers uh, that, you know, create havoc and death. So, uh, you know, that right there, uh, caused, I think created the confusion. And, but I think they were still had in their mindset that uh, if they caused enough uh, havoc and they created enough fear in y'all that maybe one of you would bolt, for the boat or whatever, and uh, that they could, you know, snatch up a nice meal. Hey, Forrest, you know, that made me think about, yeah. we often hear people talk about the side of their house being slapped with a hand or, or hit with an object, um, and it made me think before about, well, and I know this from information I get that uh, they're trying to see how many people are there, but that's a really good point because if they could you know and this happens in nature quite often with predators if they can uh get one out of a group to bolt off in a different direction then it's easy pickings right exactly i mean i when he was telling a story that's what i was i was envisioning you know watching you you can go and watch these uh videos of uh african predators uh chasing the uh wildebeest or antelope or whatever and that's what they do until one of and all it does is take one of them just become so fearful that it'll it'll bolt, thinking and that's the proper action. That that's really uh, their their death, right there. 
Right. And another thing that gets me is I've heard comments from people um, saying, oh, well, they were just curious. You didn't have to to shoot through the wall at it. You probably instigated it type of thing. And I I disagree with that because the look in its eyes, they were like translucent black marbles. But when it turned its and fixed its gaze on me, it was within two seconds, uh, microseconds. I knew within myself I was food. Like I, I can't express how I knew it. It was just something unlocked, something primal that is just like defend yourself, defend yourself. It's it wasn't a, a curious venture. Hey Fred, what are um, your folks, the, the native folks there? What's their opinion of these creatures? I mean, what's their outlook on them? Uh, not our friends. They're they're man stealers. You know they'll they'll take your women and children. Um, they'll take you know lone hunters. You know that type of thing. There's never that I've heard any good type of interaction. It, it's all related to stay away, don't follow. Um, you know don't go chasing strange noises in the woods, especially whistling. Never you know whistle alone in the woods, or even with people. You know, because you you could attract the hairy man. It's uh, I don't know. I there's so many experiences that happen in that same area as well that are very similar to what happened to us, and yep. and they all go down the line of oh crap, there it is. There's some some gunfire, and then the the creatures will either vacate the area totally or they'll stick around the outskirts and continue to try to find a, a weak point type of deal. I think it's very interesting, you know, we you guys brought up the point about how in Alaska the, the natives call him the hairy man, and that's pretty universal for such a large area. When you come down into Canada or the lower 48, it seems like uh, different tribes have different names. But actually, if you, you know, go in um, kind of a sequential order, if you're going from north to south, the names don't change a whole lot as you move across geography. But it's just an interesting observation of mine. Yeah, I, I noticed that too. I, I mean, I, I communicate with, uh, you know, natives from, you know, Vancouver, BC, and uh, some more local as far as like some Inupiaq, Athabascans, some Clinkets. But yeah, it's uh, it's been a universal type of thing with uh, even from like the Kuskokwim Delta area, the Yukon drainage area, um, that it's all the same. Uh, you know, they, they'll take your women and children. Uh, you know, be careful going out at night, uh, just things of this nature that is, I, I haven't heard of one, you know, that help you pick berries or weave a basket or that, that type of thing. There's, I haven't heard any oral history of a uh, forest friend or any kind of thing like that. So, I, I mean, and I kind of chalked that up to Alaska's vastness. I, I mean, Forrest, you've been up here. You, you know what I'm talking about. There's oh, yeah. Alaska's yeah. immense. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think people realize just how large that region is. No, well, uh, you could literally fit like 19 states into this state and not all small ones either. So uh, it, it is it is very big. Well, and uh, uh, let me interject this, but I mean, uh, I lived in the Palmer Wasilla Valley, uh, Matanuska Valley. You know exactly where I'm talking about uh, and had to drive into Anchorage to work. And um, my husband being military, we had... Uh, three bags that were always kept in the trunk of the, the vehicle at all times that had survival supplies in there because you never knew what could possibly happen just in that uh, short trip from uh, 
the Palmer Wasilla area into uh, Anchorage, Alaska. And so we were always prepared. And it was kept there. Those uh, those three uh, bags were kept in there all the time with blankets and uh, different supplies, water. And uh, we had the survival uh, survival type blankets. And you know what I'm talking about. And uh, uh, anything that could prepare us if we got stuck somewhere and we were in our vehicles so that, uh, you know, we wouldn't die. Yeah, yeah. I, I currently live in Wasilla, so I know exactly what you're talking about. I live more towards Hatcher's Pass, but <laughs> yeah, it, oh, it's you're further, you're further out then, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hey, Fred, I, lived well, trunk, oh. I lived off a trunk road. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, okay. well, that's that's not far from Hatcher's Pass. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I have a question for you, Fred. It's something that comes up periodically in our questions. What do the native folks say about the relationship between, you know, the hairy man and let's say brown bears or grizzlies? Uh, they'll kill them and eat them. Um, I, I actually had a, a, a native elder tell me a story of back when they were using sailboats for uh, drift netting salmon. So this is back on back. They had went up into Aleknagik over to uh, what we call Bear Bay locally, where uh, Bear Creek stems from. And they were going in there just to set a net for subsistence. And in the wee hours of the morning, they heard thrashing through the woods and heard a bear just making this god-awful noise and they noticed a hairy man standing on the opposite side of this creek where this bear was heading to and as the bear got to the creek it was pounced on by the other hairy man and the other one came out of the woods and they like tore it apart and were scooping out of its chest cavity and stuff and they watched that in horror and uh, i mean there's a there's accounts like that uh, at least three that I've heard. So I, I think it's adversarial, uh, to say the least, or, you know, uh, maybe a, a target of convenience as far as how they attack them. Cause they never attack them just one on. Yeah. I, I would think something as large as a brown bear, uh, might take a little extra help, but you know, we hear that with other cases too. I mean, it's not just something large prey. Um, you know, they'll do the same thing with deer and other animals. And and going for the internal organs first, that's kind of a natural, isn't it? Yes, because uh, they your internal organs, such as your liver and heart and kidneys and all that, contain uh, vital vitamins. And that is not unusual for any type of predator to uh, remove those, uh, open up the body cavity and remove those uh, actually first. Yeah, that's a man just picturing the visual. I can imagine what it looked like firsthand uh, just watching because um, these are coastal brownies these are very large thousand pound plus 10 foot plus bears they're they're not your run-of-the-mill grizzlies in the mountains these are big big bears i've heard accounts where you know they'll a bear will catch wind of one of these creatures being nearby and they'll run in fear yeah for miles and miles i i heard an account like that too these uh two guys they were hunting caribou um up in the alphabets just south of the denali highway uh, south of the North Fork of the Golcana River, and they were spotting for caribou across this small valley where they had these little mounds that come up. I wouldn't call them mountains, but they're more like mounds. They just kind of periodically are here and there throughout the tundra and the uh, alders and willows. And they saw a bear come crashing out of the willows and run. And they, they from their vantage point, they were able to see for miles. And this bear took off in a straight direction running 
for miles and they they panned back to look to see if it was being chased and all they saw was a dark figure in the willows just standing there and the bear continued just nonstop until it was out of view so i mean it beelined just a straight shot wasn't stopping for nothing and that's not characteristic behavior for a brown bear since they're you know often said they're the top of the food chain as an apex predator i guess if something is higher up on the chain than you are you're going to run from it Right. And I've seen bears where they'll react startled, but they'll immediately turn right back around and go, okay, you want to, you, you know what I mean? Like it, it'll, they may startle for a second, but they usually turn back around and backtrack to do something or scope it out or what have you. But yeah, this thing just boom was gone. What do you think Forrest? Well, those coastal brownies are not anything I've wanted to run into. I've seen plenty of the, the blonde, uh, in, uh, interior grizzlies and they're not near as big uh, as the the coastal brownies and and of course you get out up there on the kodiak then of course that's a, a, an island that those things are uh even bigger but uh you know they come equipped with claws i mean large claws so you know to intimidate a grizzly i don't care what kind of grizzly it is i mean it's got to have something that's going to have to instill a lot of fear in it to uh, have one of those take and head in the opposite direction because uh, we have encountered them on uh, hunt and hunting and in fishing. And they, you know, grizzlies are not something that you want to toy with. And that's why they always tell you, don't surprise them where bells and such as that, uh, because the outcome's not usually too good for the human. But, uh, um, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to toy with grizzly. And for one to tuck tail and run like that, you know, it's got to have, uh, got to be a creature that's instilling a lot of fear into them. Yeah, they they're not too afraid of humans generally. No, no, no. Uh, we had a soldier killed here doing exercises just right outside of Elmendorf Base earlier this spring. Uh, uh, a soldier was killed. You know, there's a lot of uh, bear attacks that happen in like Eagle River. You know, and that's right in between Wasilla and Anchorage. Uh, well, closer to yeah. they. I mean, it, it kind of Alaska doesn't care is what I try to tell people. Like everything is out to kill you, and I, I say that jokingly, but it's kind of true because you come across mm-hmm. a mama moose, you're gonna get your butt stomped to death if you don't, if you're not aware of it. You know, because they they will literally trample you to death. I don't know which you is know? the worst encounter: a moose or a bear. <laughs> I saw something I on rather, moose. <laughs> I'd rather encounter well, a bear myself. I mean, honestly, because a mom moose. Say, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, but I was just going to say here that there's something that's rather important. They have more people that die every year in Alaska from, from moose uh, from moose killing you than bears. I can believe that from what I yeah. saw on television, a thing about moose, and I never realized they were quite that um, aggressive. Oh, yeah. Even in the wintertime, you know, there's videos out there of people on their snow machines and all of a sudden they come up on a on a moose on the trail and and it's, you know, ding, ding, ding. The round begins because that moose is doesn't care about that snow machine. It's going to come and try to get you. You know, it made me think of just now of a a guy named Randy that we interviewed some time back. And I can't remember. Sorry, folks. I don't remember the name of the number of the episode, but he was a moose hunter in Canada and was tracking a moose. I, I can't remember if he actually saw it first. I think he did. And then the Sasquatch came and actually um, went through this process of, 
you know, bringing this moose down and killing it right in front of him. Yeah, that would be something to watch. Uh, you know, I've, I've had people share in similar encounters where they were moose hunting in the winter and this moose wasn't moving and then come to find out it was it was kind of skewered against a tree. Really? Like a, a tree branch was used to, to keep it uh, where it was. Uh, yeah, just, just some weird things out in the woods. Uh, uh, yeah, just experiencing what I have and then other people sharing with me what they've experienced and just like – are they our friends? I, man, I don't, I don't I, think, I don't think so. <laughs> I, not me personally, you know, and I try to, I try to listen to other channels just to see what's going on around the world kind of deal. And there's so much of it that I, I can't even, cause I can't relate to any friendly encounter. I have no reference point. It's been all, you know, fucking run or, you know, open fire. There, there's never been uh, any, any kind of, nice interactions you know my my friends don't make me fear for my life even when i don't see them you know and you know i i have other native friends who say the same thing you know from the flatheads in montana and, and other areas of washington state where uh these are not friendly they're exactly what you describe and they say point blank that they will come and eat you yeah well, i've I... never been told uh, they're gonna teach you how to weave a basket or anything <laughs> like that <laughs> <clears throat> well, look at Portlock. Portlock is a prime example. And I can't remember, was it, uh, uh, what was the other, there was actually two villages involved over there. And that the, all those natives worked for the cannery there. And um, they had, uh, you know, good jobs and everything. But yet hunters kept going up in the mountains, disappearing. There was, uh, and I think there was individuals actually disappearing from within the village. And there was too much stuff going on as far as uh, fishing, uh, fish that uh, was being stolen and uh, those people just packed up and absolutely moved out of both of those villages into, uh, well, what is it, Nanaluk and uh, Port Grantham over there. They actually moved their two villages and went to two other villages that were farther uh, inland. Yeah, and, farther uh, inland. Yeah. And Fred, I don't know if and you... Actually, uh, I don't know if you're willing to talk about it, but you were telling me sometime back here that there was a village you knew about where uh, the hairy men were coming in and actually challenging the men of the village in broad daylight to the point where they had to evacuate women and children out of the village to two other locations away from there. Yeah, um, I, I've been uh, talking to a person that I'm going to interview on that, uh, on a one-on-one -on -one interview. Um, but yeah, it was to a point to where uh, all all boundaries were being pushed. Um, there was even a kid talking about seeing them leap over buildings, running from rifle fire, um, to to run them off. Uh, it didn't matter if it was broad daylight or whatnot. And, and that that particular place isn't that far from as the crow flies from where we had our experience up the Nuyakuk River. And there's, geez, there's so many instances that people dismiss outright as just fanciful. And it's really, it's disheartening because you would think, you know, you could trust the word, the oral history of a people that have been in the area for thousands of years versus something you read in a book in a university that's been a brick building standing for maybe 300. You would certainly <laughs> think so. That that brings me to a point I wanted to address. There was, uh, and you know, I, I try not to pick on people 
who make comments on YouTube, but there was one person, Forrest, I, I know you read the comment, um, yes. was wondering why we were so interested in, you know, the, the physical aspect, you know, comparing them to apes, et cetera, and why we weren't open to portals and UFOs and all these other bizarro suggestions or, or ideas. And quite plainly, it's because, number one, you know, with Native folks like Fred and, and Native's long long history with the creatures and they actually predate i've talked to native friends who said oh yeah these creatures are here when our people came to these regions so they predate humans and there's never in my opinion been anything that supports these other crazy theories yeah i haven't seen anything like that now i've seen some crazy lights out in the wilderness you know and, and things like that but never was it oh a crazy light and there's a hairy man attacking it there's never been anything connecting the two and as far as portals go i i that that wasn't me <laughs> but as far as the whole portal thing goes i i have seen these things have such natural camouflage that once they get into the woods you can't you can't see them unless they want you to see them they blend in like a baby duckling going in the grass i mean instantaneous they can it appears they disappear, but they don't. They just blend in. Well, and I think, you know, uh, Tom and I talked about that uh, comment that was made, and it does, that doesn't bother me in the least because, you know, I'm an anthropologist. Uh, that's where I'm going to come from is the primate uh, background, and uh, that's what I think they are. And I think uh, in all consideration, I think that the majority of people actually feel that they are primates and uh, it remains to be seen how close they are to humans uh, or whether they're closer to, um, you know, say chimpanzees or gorillas or such as that. But, I mean, you know, the fact is that 99% uh, of our DNA uh, within is shared with chimps and uh, humans. So it would only make a small percentage of uh, <clears throat> that uh, would leave us uh, not sharing that with, say, Bigfoot. If we ever had the opportunity to get a DNA sample, a valid, let me say that, a DNA sample from uh, a Bigfoot. Um, they just recently uh, do through extensive DNA testing of bonobos uh, in Africa that they have found out that uh, um, bonobo chimpanzees actually share 1.6% of their DNA with humans, but yet they do not share that same DNA with the common chimp, which is the pan troglodytes. So um, there's all sorts of interesting things that are being found out all the time with uh, by scientists. And, you know, it remains to be seen what's going to end up happening when we ever do get a valid sample of DNA from uh, Bigfoot as to which end of the spectrum they belong on. You know, I think it's interesting. Everybody, because of what they see on TV or in colleges, they believe that we know everything about the natural world, and we don't. Oh, no. No. Yeah. I, what I saw looking at me in the eyes looked Native American around the eyes and the cheekbones, but had a very flat nose to the face and a very broad uh, nostril opening that face down that it, it looked way more human than what I would even consider like gorilla like <laughs> it, it was it was definitely 
I, I got that that image just seared into my memory. Um, but yeah, uh, the noises they made were like some of the hoots and and the whoops and and whatnot are just they're so loud. Um, they're so. Well, I mean, William, you know, you you've been out in the field. I'm sure you've heard it. I mean, oh, we many did. many. We were out just a couple of weeks ago and and heard all kinds of things. And I know Tom was. Uh, he, that was him trying to call me. By the way, the phone call. Sorry about that, folks. But um, I had to put him off. Um, we recorded a lot of things, and and we're still going through just tons and tons of audio and video, but things that we heard and you know tom messaged me earlier and said oh you know we we googled uh nighthawks well you know nighthawks were not the things we were hearing you know some of the some of the smaller noises and things you could dismiss that as birds you know but when you're out at two three o'clock in the morning uh and there's these loud loud bangs we heard screams um actually there was only there was only one vocal i would say that was uh, a legitimate scream. Some of them were, there were a lot of grunts for us. There were a lot of gorilla type grunts that we got one night. Mm-hmm. Actually, there were three in one location. We drove out of there because we felt like uh, we were interrupting a deer hunt. We, I told the guys that, uh, you know, based on airflow where the deer would be. And we, it was exactly right. We, we saw the deer where they should have been for that time of day. And that's when we started hearing them on both sides of us. So we decided to leave the area to leave them to their hunt. We drove down about, Oh, half half mile to a mile to a lower location and ran into something very similar down there only these were louder and i'm pretty sure it was you know two different groups probably part of the same group but they were more spread out but uh, there was one vocal that was kind of a it was a long loud moan and we heard that as we were actually driving through the area and stopped and we never heard it again but uh that's when these other grunts started going so it was very interesting yeah, and yeah. you know, there's no mistaking uh, owls uh, don't weigh 800 pounds and hoot that long or loud. You know. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. You know, these the, the Sasquatch noises are are much longer and louder, much louder. Uh, I've heard things that were just, you know, screams that were so loud um, they were almost deafening. Right, and they can still imitate things perfectly. Like I have an elder relative, um, Elizabeth Osterhaus. She and her uh, another one of our cousins back in 1967 were lured out of their apartment on Unalaska Island by one of these things imitating a known baby crying like the the level of cunning to prey on a woman's natural desire to protect a baby and using a known baby cry to lure them out to me is a level of cunning that is just uh, just wow you, you know what i mean like that's that's above any kind of just dumb animal it's it's, all, it's humanistic or very similar what do you yeah. think forrest well yes it's humanistic but you know like i always say a primate is a primate is a primate and primates are highly intelligent uh the only uh the only difference in and primates uh inability to have speech is that they don't have the neural control and the brain that we we have if every primate had a brain just like a human they'd all be able to speak and then we wouldn't be having this discussion because they would be included in the discussion uh they could voice their opinions but obviously they can't do that but um um primates all are highly intelligent uh gorillas chimpanzees they just all 
each group has its own individual way of uh, acting and, um, you know, reacting to the environment that they're in. And like I always say, primates in the wild are really reactive to their uh, environment. We are not. We are not that way. We try to control our environment. Primates don't do that, but they're just they're highly intelligent, and we have to realize that we're dealing with something that, in some respects, may be far smarter in the woods than we are. Um, so, I read yeah, I have, <laughs> I have no doubt that they they are far more intelligent than us in the woods. Uh, just by from what I've seen with my own eyes and how they move and how quick and just seamlessly they could disappear into the background but still be right there they're not invisible it's just they they have mastered blending in with their environment well i mean just from their posture i mean they would blend in if they didn't move i was pointing out to the guys in the field in this recent outing we went on as you're as you're moving through this this country you know the types of forest and things I, i said look you know, number one, if you're in, alone, in a vehicle alone driving, you're not going to be looking left and right, typically a little bit, but visibility isn't very far. Only if something is moving would you register it. And even if other people in the car were looking out the window nonstop to see something, if one of these things were simply standing still, it might appear as a stump or even a tree trunk. Yeah, I've had people share experiences like that with me where they looking at a big tree stump that there's no way... a t- tree stump that big could be there and then lo and behold there's eyes in it you know or or it (laughs) walks off you know (laughs) yeah stands up all the way and walks off and they thought it was big to begin with and then it gets bigger you know kind of expands in front of them and 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 walks off i I don't mean to make light of it i I just the visual image of what you know what was going on in front of their eyes and like i have people tell me about their experiences that they they haven't shared with anyone 30 years you know and and it's usually typical been going to this place forever never had an instance until this one day this one weird sound and then you know they no longer go hunting you know but the vast majority of them rarely set foot back in the woods again oh i can sympathize believe me well what do you have for updates for us fred uh just been trying to to do the alaskan thing um trying to get uh local natives and just fellow Alaskans to share what they've experienced and I just been compiling them on a map at my website so people can go through and you know whether they choose to accept it or not they can at least have a reference point of oh this area this happened you know this is what these people dealt with and it's it's not to sit there and try to scare anybody right. it's to let them know hey there's potential for this they should uh, you know be I'm aware. not trying they should be aware of it. It's just like grizzlies or brown bears or anything else or moose. You know, you should be aware of what the potential is. Right, because at every trailhead, there's a sign that tells you about the trailhead. And on that same sign, it says, be bear aware. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, just be aware. It, it's not that you'll see one or that, you know, it's out to get you or, you know, per se, but the potential is there, you know. One of our, our next uh, little trips we're going to go on is up by Tulsana, uh, the mud volcanoes. Um, I, I heard there's some relatively fresh upside-down trees stuck into the ground up that way, and uh, that kind of intrigued me. But, you know, I'm, I'm not an investigator. My culture is stay away, don't follow. So this is right. all new to me as far as going out into the field. What is, and uh, one place, 
Huh? Well, I was going to say, what, what does your culture say about if you do encounter one? What do you do? Uh, don't look at it and back away. But, you know, I don't know how <laughs> how effective that is. I haven't heard anyone um, tell me, at least within close proximity, that they backed away. Usually what ends up happening with people is they'll notice it and continue walking the direction they were going unless it was right in front of them. But it typically ends with someone running away, not not backing away calmly. Forrest, what's your um, advice in that situation? You know how other primates, you know how to deal with them. Well, you know, it's always good to give, uh, it's always easy to give advice uh, because that would be the perfect uh, scenario. You know, you never, really, seriously, you never look uh, a primate directly in the eyes, especially a male, because they can take that as a direct challenge to them. Uh, so that is actually very good advice. You don't, uh, you, I mean, you can actually be aware of the presence and the location of something. Uh, we all know that with our eyesight uh, and, and calmly back away. But you know what? Let's face it. Who in the hell is going to be real calm when you're confronted with something that might be 8 to 10 feet tall and uh, weighing in at pro- probably 1,000 pounds and all of a sudden it's staring at you? So I can certainly re- respect the fact that uh, somebody might t- might tuck tail and run. So uh, I mean that's just a natural reaction. So, um, but I do want to okay. spread <laughs> if I can. If I can. Uh, now this was something the first time I ever saw this. This was in Alaska, and in fact we were driving <laughs> up the coastal highway and we had come into. Um, uh, I, well, I take that back. I did see it on one time on the coastal highway. You know what I'm talking about in Canada there. And um, uh, then <clears throat> we came into Canada, and I kept seeing periodically, it wasn't a lot of them, but just every once in a while you see these trees that are turned upside down with the root balls in the air. And my husband's explanation was, oh, that's, uh, you know, the timber companies have probably, uh, you know, done that. Well, this was on the side of the road, so I couldn't feature why the timber companies would have been down on the side of the road, and it didn't look like there was any type of timbering activity going on there. So what is your take on that? I have always wondered about that, and I have never asked anybody about it. Right. Well, uh, culturally speaking, they, we were always told, you see those types of things, you don't go that direction. Uh, basically, like uh, it would be considered a, like a boundary marker of some kind, like kind of like uh you know the the natives in king kong you know how they'd have their fences up right. and stuff yeah. don't don't mm-hmm. continue that way it, it, along those lines what do you think bigfoot's doing that or do you think it's uh other creatures oh i i have no doubt it's the hairy man um but then again you know i from what i've seen and w- with my experiences someone could easily say well you're biased you know someone could have pulled a prank or whatever well um I filmed in a location earlier this season at Eklutna Lake, and it's not a very uh, – it's all of Alaska is remote, but, I mean, it's fairly close to the city. And where I was filming, um, I inadvertently I was filming right next to an upside-down tree, but it had been there so long that the base of it had kind of rotted and it kind of leaned over. But that thing, we couldn't pull it out of the ground. It, there was no way machinery or a person could have just turned it upside down and shoved it that deep into the ground. Even a strong wind couldn't have flipped that tree to make it do that. And just, 
uh, there's so many unknowns like because the speculation drives me nuts but it also drives me forward to kind of like seek a better understanding like hey, william has hey fred how big 40. how big are these trees typically are they are they all kind of the same size or are they different no, sizes no, or they're big yeah no they're big yeah they're not little bitty trees driven into the ground like a sphere. No, we're talking about some trees that are probably uh, three and four feet around. No, they're big. Yeah. Uh, the one I saw was probably about two foot around where it was stuck into the ground. But at a, at a Clutena Lake there, there's a, a, a lot of gravel as well just under the topsoil, just by how it, geographically it is or whatever. But it was down there. Um, we spent probably an hour trying to dig around it to see how deep it was just to kind of capture that on video and we we couldn't it, it was impossible to to wrestle just the root ball around was probably over a thousand pounds i i wonder I, I was thinking you know about the creatures you know the mechanics behind it would they be able to just pick it up and jam it in the ground or is it something maybe they dig the hole you know slide the tree in fill it in and you know stand it up that way well, if you yeah, got that's, if, that's a good and, question. And the of this is too uh, around the uh, rivers and such around there. Um, I never saw one directly on the banks, but uh, I did see them up on the uh, where the cutout, the cut banks are, and then up above there, that first level, above, usually above the rivers, uh, you could see them. But there's a lot of glacial drift and uh, and such in that area, and I think the soil would be fairly easy for something that's strong and powerful to be able to drive something like that into the ground yeah because from what i saw i not even a group but 10 very strong guys could have manipulated that thing and and, and drove it in the ground like that I, I would there's think, just no i would think you probably even need a group of these things to be able to do that to one tree yeah well, you're probably uh, right there. that's a, a lot of weight with one of those trees definitely uh yeah, because even moving firewood around, you know, uh, a couple hundred pound log on your shoulder when you're walking around, it, you know, it, it it's not easy. It gets heavy so pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, oh, very, very quick. No matter how much technique you use, you know, bend with your knees and all that stuff, it's still a couple hundred pounds on your shoulder. There's no, you know, there's no way out of that. Now, Forrest, you've had a series of things going on on your property. Anything recent there? Well, <clears throat> no. I sent you those pictures of, of what I found. Uh, Y'all were out and about in the, the woods there when I sent that to you. Um, uh, you did get those, didn't you? Yeah, I know I, I sent did. them to Tom. I, I, think, okay. I think Tom sent them to me. I'd have to look. <laughs> I've been so busy, yeah. you know, yeah. since we got back. <laughs> we we were averaging 18-hour days in the field for a solid week, and... Uh, like I say, just so much to go through. And when we're when we're done recording, I'll talk to you guys about some of that stuff. Kind of give you an update of what we what we got. And for the public, we'll be putting that out in, in the future. But uh, I'm not going to talk much about that yet because that's that's a that's a project we're working on. Well, I hadn't. Um, I'll tell you exactly what transpired. I had I was so happy because I hadn't had any problems there. And I thought really it was probably because we uh, had to shut everything up and close all the windows and such because of the, the heat. And I had the AC going so that uh, um, that was probably why I wasn't having any more window uh, visitors. And anyway, I went out about 830 in the morning to go let the cats out of the, their cat house and uh, open the door. And I have a place, 
my my water faucet is on the back side of the trailer. And I went out the back door, went down the porch, and it always drips there. And from uh, we have a connection that one that goes into um, an area for me to water the backyard, and then uh, then I have a hose that's strung out underneath the trailer, um, and it goes to some water tanks that are on the other side of the fence that I just put water in on the other side of the fence. And uh, so it drips there at this area. So it's like got about a three or four foot circumference of, of just wet area there. And um, I had filled up the water tanks the night before, so there, it was pretty damp there. And I stepped, uh, I always step across it, and the cats run around it. And uh, um, I went out there, and uh, I opened up the cat house, and I, I didn't look down at that point in time. I don't know why I didn't, but I just didn't. And uh, I came back around, and I stopped when I looked there, and I thought, Wait a minute. And it's not unusual for me to see, I have a pet raccoon, I told you about, and it's not unusual for me to see Ricky's footprints in there or cat footprints or anything like that. But cats actually try to avoid it. They don't like to get feet with. So um, they'll either walk around it or jump over it. So I, I, I didn't see any prints until I came back the other way, and I'm like looking at this print, and I'm like, wait a minute. That looks like a human footprint, a bear foot human footprint and then i got to looking and there was a couple of more there and uh i wished and some that i'd had some uh something to cast a print i think i could have it would have even be, been better if i'd had something to cast the print there and that way i could have actually looked and seen if there was any type of uh, uh lines or anything in there but I tried to take as good pictures as I could have. They didn't turn out as well as I would like them to. But uh, that's really the only thing that I've had happen. And I thought that was rather <clears throat> unusual that they would have walked. That meant that they must have walked right up to my porch. What would have concerned me is when did they make the tracks before, you know, after you walked past there momentarily, you know? No, I, I think they were there. I think it happened during the night, uh, Fred. I, I don't think they did it while I was, you know, out and about because this was during the morning, uh, and I haven't had any daylight uh, uh, run-ins with them. So I think that they would have probably been there the night before. I just didn't look down when I went through there, and I, when I came back, that's when actually the, the footprint was coming from the direction that I was coming. It was actually the footprint uh, showed to be going up towards the uh, the porch. So I don't think I actually would have seen it as clearly when I was going down the path to go let the cats out as I did when I came back. It was quite clear to me at that point in time, there is a human footprint there or a human type footprint there. The only thing was it was uh, when I put my foot, I kind of held my foot up next to it, and it was much longer than my, my footprint, about two inches a good two inches and I couldn't imagine you don't walk around in Texas in bare feet uh, at night with the grass burrs and such that we got out here my son can attest to that he still remembers when he ran out in the front yard here uh, when he was three years old he's never forgotten it he came back with both feet loaded with grass burrs so uh, you just don't you don't do that here in Texas <laughs> Yeah, I, I could imagine. We were in a spot. We went up a trail, and 
it, it had recently after it rained. This is just a little while back, maybe a month ago. And on the trail up, we saw nothing. And it started raining. And on the on the way back, there wasn't full-on tracks, but you could see where something had been crossing our back trail a couple different times. It wasn't a bear because uh, it was bipedal. You could tell by the steps and the impressions in the tundra. And it, it seemed to avoid the, mo- uh, the mud at all costs. It was like, I don't know, it, like a stalking behavior. But, you know, that's speculation of course but the feelings we had in that area were immense so we just kind of just backed on out of there because i'm just with what i went through it's hard for me to fully engage like oh let's follow these tracks or let's let's go see what you know is this direction because i i already know and I, i i i'd like to get some evidentiary footage you know in 4k crystal clear but the other part of me is like uh, no. Yeah, do you, just, do you, you know, really want to do that? <laughs> yeah, do you, you remember the last time, Fred? Do you really, oh. you know, let's rethink this. I'd rather get better footage from a safer place, that's for sure, because right. we can't move like they can. Well, listen, we're just about out of time. Fred, would you like to give out any contact information or places where people could go to see what you've got? Uh, yeah, just my website. It's linked directly to my YouTube channel. So uh, it's subarcticalaskasasquatch.com. And I have an interactive map of the state with markers of uh, encounter locations. And you just click on the marker and it's embedded to my YouTube channel. So awesome. it'll pull up a video of what, what happened in that area. Well, Fred, it's always a pleasure. We have to have you back on a regular basis. Uh, folks, stay with me a moment. Everyone uh thanks for joining us and stay tuned for the uh, q a in a couple days in bigfoot history near nia bay washington 1962 or 63 a nia bay man wrote to roger patterson that a serviceman driving at night to nia bay from a radar installation almost ran into a huge beast that was definitely human-like walked on two legs, and was covered with hair. When his lights hit this creature, it bounded across the road in one stride and up a steep slope about 20 feet high in another leap. Bigfoot lore alive in Estacada area, Clackamas County, Oregon. Long history of alleged encounters in Estacada by Vanessa Von Voris for the Estacada News, October 1st, 2008. While hiking along the snowy banks of the Clackamas River late one January afternoon in 1969, Millie Kiggins of Estacada, her husband, and their friend Art Schneider found something that would thrust the Kingans and the quiet wilderness surrounding Estacada into an international spotlight. We went to look at a Forest Service cabin up above Squaw Lake on the way to Cold Springs about 20 miles from Estacada, Kiggins said. They were going to sell them, and we wanted to look at them. We started out late, and we were in about three feet of snow. There was a gate, and we couldn't get through, so we started to walk and it looked like somebody had already gotten through because there were tracks in the snow. They noticed the large size of the tracks and their depth. They were 18 inches deep, she said. Whatever had made them was heavy, because ours were a couple inches deep. 
It had to have been walking on two feet, and its stride was 67 inches. The path of the tracks was in an unusually straight line, too straight to be man-made footprints, she said. The hikers followed the imprints for about a quarter mile before they realized it was getting late and decided to turn back. Before leaving, Kiggins documented their discovery with a photograph and contacted the U.S. Forest Service. They said it was a snowshoe rabbit. I have no idea what it was, but if it was a rabbit, it would have to be a big one to make prints that big. I told them if it was a snowshoe rabbit, they had better look out because it's big enough to eat them, she said. Back at home on their farm, on the outskirts of Estacada, the Kigginses began to experience a series of Bigfoot-like phenomena. He was around here for a year, she said. We found footprints all over the farm. Once they led to a five-foot fence and continued on the other side uninterrupted, as if he stepped right over it. Sometimes we would smell him. Smelled like a bad nursing home. We heard loud screams and grunts all at once lasting ten or fifteen seconds. It could be heard miles away. The hair on the back of your neck would stand up. It spooked the cattle. Kiggin sent a copy of her picture to Bigfoot hunter John Green, who later visited her with Roger Patterson, famous for the Patterson-Gimlin Bigfoot film footage from 1967. K.A.T.U. interviewed her, and she was included in a British television documentary. Her photograph was published in a book written by a wildlife biologist and in a fifth-grade textbook. During the early 1970s, Estacada became a hotspot for Bigfoot enthusiasts, Scientists, hunters, trappers, and the media came from throughout the country and across the sea in the hope of gathering evidence of the existence of an elusive, shadowy creature that walks the forest on two legs. Many of the Bigfoot hunters also came looking for Kiggins. Eventually, the Estacada Police Department, back when Estacada had one, helped put a stop to it. We had all sorts of crackpots up here, she said, and I guess I'm one of them because I saw the tracks, but I can't help that. For anonymous first-hand accounts of Bigfoot phenomena, enthusiasts can now peruse the databases of websites such as OregonBigfoot.com and BigfootEncounters.com that collectively contain approximately 40 reports for the Estacada area alone between 1912 and 2006. A U.S. Forest Service employee, who does not wish to be identified, said she has never taken a single Bigfoot report in the 12 years she has worked at the desk of the Clackamas River Ranger District Office in Estacada. We don't have a book or a piece of paper that states sightings at all, she said. She refused to comment further for fear she would, quote, get in trouble again, unquote. There was at least one highly photographed, easily accessible Bigfoot in Estacada, a menacing replica created by a chainsaw artist. It guards the entrance to Mike's second-hand store and holds a sign warning potential shoplifters they will be eaten. I've heard second- or third-hand stories, store owner Mike Doolittle said. I would think that if there was a Bigfoot, I would have heard about it on the 6 o'clock news. I know Santa Claus is real because I've seen him. I've never seen a Bigfoot. Kiggins has never seen Bigfoot either, and she is careful to emphasize that she is not exactly sure what created the strange tracks, the spooky sounds, or the awful smell. Although nearly 40 years have passed since she photographed the tracks in the snow, she still gets correspondence from Bigfoot enthusiasts. I recently got a letter from a guy in England who wants to know about it, she laughed. I don't know if I'm going to write back. It might be just another crackpot. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. 
If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.